Hello, my name is Jamie Mossengren, and I beat the often path by becoming a professional unicorn. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Now, on this show, we showcase unusual success stories, people who have beaten the often path, the traditional path. They've found something truly unique that has brought them a sense of success or fulfillment or satisfaction in their own life. I've been very careful on the show not to define success as purely making a ton of money. For me, success has more to do with freedom, personal fulfillment, joy on the job. Also, success is bringing things that are good to the planet, making the planet a better place, not a worse place. If you made millions of dollars, but you're poisoning the earth, I don't care about your story. That's not what this show is for. So my guest today is a true, true, true example of the kind of freedom that we all have when we feel like we're stuck in a situation that we don't really love. Jamie Mossengren is with me, and he, like so many people, was unfulfilled and felt trapped by the 9 to 5 grind. So he quit, and no, he didn't go join the circus, but instead, he became a unicycling unicorn, a street busker, a professional street busker touring around the globe, performing his show for all kinds of ages, everybody, and he actually has built a successful career out of this for the last 14 years of his life. And he's much, much happier with the freedom that he has and the direct connection that he has with the people that he interacts with. So this story is a reminder of what's always possible. You don't have to think inside the box for your next career move. You can build a life that you actually love. So I can't wait to share this story with you. Here's Jamie Mossengren. Well, hello. Welcome to the show, Jamie, first of all. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there's not too many people in the world who would even dare to call themselves a professional unicorn, let alone know what that means. So already we're off to an incredible start. Um, tell us a little bit, what is it exactly that you do and how the hell did you end up where you are? Sure. So I'm actually a professional performer. So I do like a unicycling juggling comedy show and I travel the world doing it at different fairs and festivals, um, street performing, um, basically wherever, you know, people need entertainment, I'll go and, and hopefully provide some. That sounds awesome. And before that, tell me you were a banker. Just say that you were a banker. <laughs> what were you doing before you I, were there? I wasn't a banker, but I was a mechanical engineer. A mechanical engineer. Okay. So did you go to school for mechanical engineering, or how did you end up on this crazy path? Yeah, so I, um, I went to the University of North Dakota, um, got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, and I tried it for four years at a medical company in Minnesota. And, um, you know, the first year or two was fun, exciting, and new, and the money was decent, and and all was well but after like the third and fourth year i just felt like i was in jail it was monday through friday at a small cubicle with no windows you don't get much you know vacation the first couple of years you're working and i, I love traveling so i just felt like i was stuck in minnesota i couldn't leave i couldn't you know it just felt like jail and it, the more i thought about it i'm like i have to do this for 40 more years like this is crazy like i'm gonna you know, I'm going to go crazy if I have to do this for the rest of my life. So I, um, I just, uh, quit my job one day and, uh, decided to move to California. 
had a couple of friends uh, living in a, you know, kind of like a big house and they were surfing and just having fun. So I moved in with them and I was just sitting there, you know, part-time jobs to pay the bills. And I saw a street performer in Venice Beach and I um, video recorded him do a show. It's like a 20 minute juggling show. And towards the end, I actually zoomed in when he collected his money. And then I went back home and I watched it in slow motion and I added it up and this guy made a decent amount of money in a 20 minute show. And I, I did the math and I'm like, you do three, four, five shows a day. Like that's good money. I think I can do that. So I decided right then and there, I would try to street perform. And, um, and that's, that's how I got started. And did you have any of the skills that you needed beforehand? Were you already a unicyclist or a juggler or were you starting from zero? Yeah. So I actually was a really good unicyclist. I'm um, growing up. My brother and I um, showed up one day at my grandma's house and she had a unicycle and she had bought it just for the grandkids because she lived on a farm. And, you know, whenever we went to visit her, we would always be bored and be like, ah, that sucks. There's nothing to do. And then one day, there was a unicycle she bought at a garage sale. And uh, so every time we visited, my brother and I would just practice and practice. And and he was always the older, better, wiser, you know, brother that could do everything better. And of course, he could ride it farther and longer. Um, but eventually we joined a unicycle club in Minnesota, uh, one of the biggest unicycle clubs in the world, actually, called the Twin City Unicycle Club. And he kind of faded away and stopped doing it. And I continued doing it. And um, I started competing and traveling nationally and internationally. And so it's always been a hobby of mine. And then um, when I decided to street perform, I could juggle unicycle. But I didn't know how to perform. Um, I didn't know. Yeah, I had no idea about street performing. It was a whole different ball game. And uh, I thought... It would be easy in the first, you know, I, I got a pen and paper and I wrote, wrote down like a little script and what I was going to say and do. And, and on paper, it seemed great. And <laughs> right. I went out to Huntington Beach the first day ever and worked like super hard, doing all my hard tricks for an hour, just sweating. I had a hat out and I made like $2 in an hour. And I was devastated. I was like, oh, this is not going to work. And I was actually packing up. I was giving up. I'm like, all right, this sucks. Um, bad idea. And as I was packing up, this old lady came up and gave me a $20 bill. And she's like, I've been watching you from over there for a while. And you're really good at what you do. Keep doing what you love. And then a light bulb went off into my head. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe that's the universe telling me I can do this as a job. I just have to figure out how to do it. And so over the next couple of months, I would watch other performers and kind of see what they did, what, you know, how, how to keep a crowd, how to get a crowd. And I just kind of learned from watching um, and trial and error. Like that's one of the best things about being a street performer is you instantly know if something works, you know, if you say or do something and the crowd leaves, you're never going to do that again. If you say something and do something and they laugh or they applaud, that's good. And you're going to keep that in, in the show. So it's a really, you learn really fast on the streets. Mm -hmm. 
People always talk, you know, comedians and various uh, other people in the similar profession about how hard it is to develop one minute or five minutes of what they call material. I just read Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, and he talks about how it took him 10 years to build what he thought was a good 25 minutes of material. And that's something that sounds crazy to the average person. They think, how hard could it be to keep people captivated for 25 minutes? But did you feel it's that hard. as well? It's hard, right? So how long did it's it take hard, you before yeah, you hard. felt like you had and an actual 20 minutes of good material? It was probably, it probably took a good year. Um, um, the first year I still had, you know, some of the part-time jobs just to help pay the bills. And, you know, I, I could see my my hats going up um, slowly. You know, I would get better at, you know, what I was doing and getting bigger crowds and, and um, having a better hat line, that's where you ask for the money. And so I could, you know, I kept track of everything and I could just see it, just see, see it slowly kind of creeping up. And um, about a year after I started, I, I was able to quit all my part-time jobs. And then that was 14 years ago and I haven't looked back. 14 years, I was going to ask. So that's uh, such an interesting thing. And for me personally, for those who haven't heard this story, I got into unicycling in much the same way, actually. So my 16th birthday, my dad got me a unicycle as a joke. He gave me a card and it said, I bet you wanted four wheels for your 16th birthday, but I could only afford to get you one. So he got me a unicycle in the garage as a gag gift. And of course, I was kind of disappointed, but, but I knew I wasn't going to get a car. It wasn't like I was expecting to get a car. But there's this unicycle sitting, and I thought, I'm going to get on this thing. I'm going to try to ride it before the school bus comes. And I couldn't. And it shocked me that it was difficult. I thought it would just be easy. I never thought about unicycling, but it was really hard. And then that part of my brain that's determined was like, I have to figure out how to do this. So I spent every day until I could ride the thing around the block. And then I was going downstairs. I, I got pretty good at mountain unicycling and that kind of thing. I went to Moab Muni Fest, which was this... Uh, club where we went down slick rock i was really interested in chris Holmes, somebody who you probably know this was many years ago and watching him do trials and mountain unicycling in vancouver or british columbia i believe so i got into it and i got good at that kind of thing and i could do some of the skills of the more circus-like skills like idling one-footed idling and i could juggle three things but that was pretty much where i tapped out and i see what you've been able to do and i've seen performers who are able to do that and i'm I'm just in awe. I don't know how you're able to do all of those things at once, like juggling and also on a 12-foot unicycle. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a bit crazy. I, I like your story because um, I'm sitting in my van right now, and I have a unicycle right behind me, my off-road mountain unicycle one, and it has a geared um, hub, and it's like the top of the line, and it actually costs more than my van. So. <laughs> right. So your dad's saying he couldn't afford one. That's kind of funny because my uh, unicycle is actually it's more expensive more than, a van. than four wheels. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah, but he got me the very cheapest one. And I think the first time I tried to ride it off of a curb or down some stairs, eventually I was riding down huge sets of stairs. But the first time I tried to go down a stair, it just tacoed the rim completely and destroyed the cranks because it wasn't designed for that at all. And that was when I discovered, oh, I need a legitimate unicycle. And that's how I found unicycle.com. And that's how you found me from interviewing that guy. So exactly. I've always been interested in those kinds of things, you know, Rubik's Cube solving, juggling. But I, I never had the talent, I feel, to make it more than just a hobby. 
I, I got reasonably good, but it was watching Chris Home do his thing in person in Moab that I realized, okay, there's levels to this, and it requires talent. So did you realize pretty early on that you had a legitimate talent for doing these kinds of tricks? Um, yeah, growing up, like I knew, I, you know, I would compete at competitions yeah. and I would win some gold medals and stuff. So I knew I was a good unicyclist, um, but not a good performer. And it's, I learned, you know, that first year, it's not about what you do. It's how you do it. And you, you gotta, you gotta keep the audience entertained and, you know, comedy and jokes. That's your number one go-to because, you know, they like tricks and they like watching, you know, hard stuff, but they get bored after a few minutes. If you're just doing tricks and, and stuff like that, they'll walk away. Um, so you gotta keep, you know, telling jokes and making them laugh, making them smile. And, um, it's also nice to have like a big grand finale that they see what's coming up. So they're like, Oh, we don't want to leave because we want to see that guy ride that 12 foot unicycle unicorn thing. You've got like a bag um, so of props on the side of shopping, all these things. And they're wondering, when is he going to bring that out? Exactly. Yep. And you just, you know, you got to build it up slowly and you got to, you know, keep telling people uh, yeah, just a few minutes, I'll be riding that. And, and then you just keep getting interrupted by things. But first I got to warm up and then you do some warm up tricks and then you're like, okay, I'm going to climb up, but actually, um, I need a volunteer, you know, a little kid and you get a kid out and do some jokes and tricks with a kid. And, um, so you just kind of keep, keep stalling. And what happens is the crowd gets bigger and bigger the more you stall. You know, if they're clapping and laughing, um, the crowd's going to get bigger. And the bigger the crowd, the more money you're going to make. Sure. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's taken me years and years to get to where I'm at right now. But it's, uh, it's awesome. I love it. Do you feel that you've fully refined your act at this point? Do you feel like you know exactly what you're going to do each time you get out there? Yep, I know. Like it's uh, it's it's pretty perfect for me right now. I know um, what I say and do works, and you know every now and then I'll try some new things just to see, you know, if I can add something or. Um, but pretty much my show is almost identical from day to day, show to show, um, because I know it works, and if it works, then why, you know, why change it? We interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast for a silly sketch. Son, it's time you got serious about your career. Oh God, here we go again. Now listen to me, I want you to have stability, I want you to get a job where you'll be well taken care of. Dad, I'm not doing it. It's time to get serious, son. Look, the circus is in town, just promise me you'll try to join it. I'm not gonna be like you, Dad. I'm not gonna join the circus. And give me one good reason why not. I don't want to work for a salary. I just wanna collect money directly from people while making them happy. I'm gonna become a street performer. Oh God, what have I done? What have I done? My son, my son! And now back to the seriousness. My first introduction to this kind of thing, uh, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. And there's this giant thing. Maybe you've, you've probably performed there, but there was this thing called Buskerfest, a giant celebration downtown where they had a whole bunch of buskers, street performers, 
And it was a thing that people went from the city to. So it was maybe the largest crowd you'd find for these kinds of things because you would go to be finding these sorts of things. And I remember seeing, you know, just a, the whole breadth of people, somebody who's throwing playing cards on top of a 10-story building or just these kinds of crazy yeah, feats. I, I know that guy. <laughs> You've seen this guy, yeah. I'm sure yeah. you know all these guys. Uh, and yep. just uh, maybe, you know, the zip code man, the amazing zip code oh, man who yep, yep. he draws, he takes a yep. chain and he makes a map of the United States and he can tell anybody's zip, anybody says their zip code and he can say what street they're from, what their favorite restaurant is, what their accent is, all of these kinds of things that you would never think about in regular life. But it was supremely entertaining to me. And I never had realized before, like you said, that there could be a way to make a living from doing these kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. Like Busker Fest are my favorite because they're, you know, set up for us for street performers and people go there to be entertained and they bring money and they know what's going to happen. We're on the street. You're just stopping random people where they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know you're going to ask for money and, and so it's a little bit harder. I, I personally like that challenge and it's, it's kind of fun to go somewhere new or wherever. And you like just see this nice open space with people and like, they have no idea what's going to take place there in the next half an hour and how you're going to create this magical energy and, and turn it into a theater outdoor. And it's, it's fun having that challenge of trying to get a crowd and keep a crowd and, and then most importantly, get money from the crowd. Um, but busker festivals are nice because you have to do that. Like people are already there. You already have a crowd. Um, unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't have many of them. We don't really have the culture for them. Um, and like the space, a lot of like cities aren't made with street performing in mind. Uh, where if you go to Europe, you know, there's a lot of outdoor plazas and squares and and it's it's set up a lot better over there and canada actually has some of the best busking festivals they uh they have a good sense of humor they're very generous and they they love street performers and they have some of the biggest and best festivals up there um so much so that like the edmonton fringe it's so good that you actually have to pay six hundred dollars to go in a lottery to try to get a spot to perform for the 10 days of the festival. Wow. Um, you do get some of the money back or most of the money back if you don't win the lottery, but it's that good that you actually have to pay to get a spot. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it all depends. Some, some, uh, you know, pay you to come there, you know, maybe they're not as big. Uh, maybe it's, they don't pay you, but you just keep the tips. So it's all, you know, very depending on the location and and how big or um, bad the festival is, I guess. Sure. And that brings up an interesting question because I lived in Europe for many years. And I remember some people that I knew wanted to perform in the Dom Square, which is the main square of Amsterdam. But there they have some kind of permitting system. You can't just show up. You have to reserve a spot. And it's somewhat competitive. Is that something that you have to deal with? Do you have to get permits or do you have permission in some places and not others to do what you do? Yeah. So, you know, every place is totally different. Um, some places you need permits. 
Um, usually they're pretty easy to get and pretty cheap. Um, what I usually do if I don't know is I'll just go somewhere and start performing. And if I get caught, you know, they're just going to tell me the rules and be like, ah, you can't perform here. You have to get a permit or, um, or if there's other performers, they'll tell me, you know, oh, you actually have to do this first or, um, so yeah, it's all, it's different all over. And a lot of places it's just a first come first serve. So you create a, a queue, a line, and you just, you show up. And if there's a couple people in front, they do a show, then you do a show. And then it just keeps repeating. Um, most places are pretty friendly. Um, we all get along for the most part, which is awesome. We, you know, we become friends as a small kind of network. Um, there's not a ton of street performers out there. So we see each other at all these different, you know, fairs and festivals, which is nice. Um, but there are certain places where they're not as friendly. Um, and actually Venice beach is probably one of the worst places to street perform. I can um, imagine that. The break, yeah. The break dancers, they're really, um, Intense. really quite mean. Yeah. There, you know, there's a bunch of them and I actually lived there for a year trying to perform and, um, they would, you know, steal my stuff and oh. threaten to hit me and slash my tires. And, um, it was not a good environment. Plus you have all the drugs and homeless people yeah. and it's, you can make decent money there, but it's not a fun, fun making money experience. Yeah. And, um, it, it got so bad. I would have to call the cops every you know, a couple of days just because they weren't following the rules and taking turns. I eventually got a GoPro to put on my helmet. So in case they like stole my stuff or did anything to me, I would have that. And that actually worked really good. As soon as I showed up one day with that, they followed the rules. They didn't hit me. They didn't steal stuff because they knew I was recording. So, mm. but it was just like, I don't want to deal with that, you know? So I'm, I'm glad I moved away from there because that was just kind of bringing me down. Yeah. Where are you based out of now? Um, and then, um, so right now I'm originally from Minnesota, but I have a van yep. and I just travel so much for work that I just, I'm, uh, don't really have a base okay. right now. I just kind of follow the festival scene and, uh, just go where, where the wind takes me. That's remarkable. Um, and another problem that street performers run into are cops. Um, especially in the U S they, they look down at, on street performers and a lot of places they don't like street performers cause they associate it with homeless people. Cause sometimes you get, you know, beggars and, um, druggies and, and there are some street performers that are, you know, pretty bad and they are homeless and they are on drugs. Um, but if you do it right, you can actually make a career out of it. But the cops, when they see you, they they want to scare you off. They want to like get rid of you because they don't they don't like it. Um, but it's actually a First Amendment right, and so legally in the U.S., you don't need a permit anywhere. I know some places have permits, but um, people have you know sued the city and won because it's illegal. It's a First Amendment right, and I actually keep I have like this little card i keep on me it's like a get out of jail for free card cool and it just says i know my i'm allowed to perform here and so whenever i get caught by um or stopped by a cop 
the first thing I do is I pull out this and I'm like, look, I know I'm not doing anything wrong. Um, you might want to read this card because I know my rights. And 99% of the times they read it, leave, and I never see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has all the court cases listed on the backside that have won. And it's it's a really nice card to have if you are doing a lot of street performing. Is there any chance that I can uh, get a digital copy of that to put up on this episode, front and back, sure, just yeah. in case anybody it's, wants to rip um, that for their own? I mean, if it's you know proprietor yeah. to you, feel free to say no, but that seems pretty useful. Yep, no, I, I actually didn't make it. I found it online myself. Okay. And um, there's a little link where you can download it, and okay. I'll send you the, the info, and you can put that in the little descriptions or, or notes. Yeah, great stuff for would-be performers out there. And that's that's interesting. That, that that saddens me. I guess I can't say that I'm shocked, but I thought perhaps when an authority figure would see you, you know, with all of the stuff that you have, you've got the costumes, you've got the big unicycle, you've got all these things. I would hope, I guess, that some part of them would be filled with a childlike sense of wonder or a little bit of whimsy, and they would recognize that this is a positive force because I think it is a positive force. You're bringing laughter and joy to a place where there was none. It's a... Uh, right. Does anybody see it that way? Does anybody become kid-like again, or is it always a hassle? Yeah, no, I, you know, every place is different. Not every cop's different. Um, for the most part, most cops are pretty cool, and, like, sometimes they'll even watch a show. They'll, you know, give a tip afterwards. They'll, you know, give a high five, um, and that's super cool. Um, so it just depends on the situation, and I'm always friendly too. So, you know, I, the best way is just to be nice. You know, if they come up and talk to you, just, you know, explain that you're um, a nice guy. You're just trying to spread some positive energy and have some fun. And most of the time they understand that. But every now and then, you know, maybe the the cop was having a bad day or something or, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just... Uh, the crazy world out there, you know, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to do not only what I love, but I, I get to spread some positive energy and, um, looking out, doing a show and seeing little young kids laughing and you see the old grandparents laughing and all sorts of different people in between, you know, different ages, races. And it's nice that I can say I'm part of that. I created some of that, you know? And that's the thing about not only making people laugh, but performing in general is the world doesn't ask for this. And yet it's this thing that, like all art, it makes our life livable. It's make, it's what makes life worthwhile, in my opinion. I mean, if we imagine the opposite, a cold, gray, faceless building with no windows, no art, no laughter, these are the things we think of when we think of a horror story or a terrible totalitarian regime or those kinds of things. So taking it upon yourself when nobody asks you to go out and say, I'm going to make a crowd of people laugh today. I'm going to make a crowd of people smile today. And like you said, a way that is totally inclusive that anybody can enjoy. That's an incredibly powerful thing, in my opinion. And imagine the world without that. Imagine if you didn't do that or nobody did that. How awful would that be? I think we got a little taste of it the last year and a half during the pandemic because we weren't allowed to perform. We weren't allowed to get crowds. And 
I think it was kind of a dark time because people didn't have that live entertainment. They didn't have music. They didn't have street performers. And um, it was it was tough, not only for them, but for me, like I couldn't perform. I was, you know, out of job. And I, you know, not only did I miss the money, but I miss making people laugh and smile and getting that that energy back. Um, it was really tough to just sit there and, and be idle and, and not, um, you know, not do what I love. Um, so I actually, during the pandemic, I created these, uh, roving unicycling unicorns and I would just go to different cities or wherever I was and just ride them around just to make people laugh. Just, you know, I didn't do it for the money, just because I, I needed it for myself. I needed it for my soul to, you know, feel good about myself and, and try to make people happy during the crazy times. Yeah. And it was, it was awesome. I would, um, you know, I went to Duluth and did that for, sometimes I'd ride for hours cause I was just having so much fun and, and, uh, it's yeah. And, and now I have those, so I can actually use them for roving and it's, uh, turning out to be, nice to have that extra little um thing i can use for promotions and stuff Mm -hmm. and is that is that feeling something that you always knew that you had did you know as a kid and growing up that you love to make people laugh you love to make them smile or is that something that you learned and developed along the way i'm definitely learning along the way um because growing up i was actually really shy like i was the least person you would ever think would become a performer. Um, I, I hated public speaking. I was super shy. And then, you know, when I started doing it, that was probably my hardest thing to get over was trying to speak in front of people. And, and, uh, but practice makes perfect. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And now I would say I'm pretty dang good at it. <laughs> I believe you. 14 years is a long time. And you've made it your sole career that entire time, right? That is correct. Yep. And um, fabulous. I still like I do a lot of fairs and festivals now, where they pay me to come. And I'd say about half my income um, every year is from a paid gig, you know, corporate gig or you know, state fair, county fair, fucking festival. And then half is still street because I still I still like the street. Um, I could probably never do street again and just do fairs and festivals but it keeps me alive it keeps me i don't know it keeps me trying new stuff and like i said earlier it's just a fun challenge to actually go out there and and create something out of nothing and um i also like like people that have no money can watch and they don't need a tip um because hopefully the people that have money will make up for the people that don't have money and so you, you have rich people watching, you have poor people. It's, uh, it's great. There's something one so of, poetic I, and beautiful I about that. I think one of the, yeah, one of the best jobs in the world, like, I think. I mean, I love it. So you've mentioned that you, as so many people do, you felt trapped. You felt like you were in a prison in a nine-to-five, which I completely understand and have felt in my life many times. Um now you're doing the opposite. You're hashtag van life. You're traveling around. 
So how do you set your own schedule, knowing that you can go anywhere, you could perform anywhere? What's your thought process behind deciding which city to go and when and what to do in between those bigger dates? Um, so I do a lot of um, emails. So I spend a lot of time on my laptop um, sending out all my info, uh, my electronic press kit to all these different festivals. And I have it on my Outlook calendar. Whenever I find like a new fair or festival, I'll add it as a reminder every year to apply for that festival. So it'll pop up. It'll say apply to Minnesota State Fair. I'll send out an email and then another one will pop out, apply to this. And so I'll just keep, um, when I'm not physically performing, I'll just go to a coffee shop and spend a couple hours sending out emails and then whatever sticks. So, you know, if I send out a hundred emails, I might get 10 replies back saying we're interested. So the more I can send out, the better my odds. And then I just kind of base my my year out of, you know, where I get booked. and um, Or I'll, I'll focus somewhere. Like maybe I'll try to do Canada one summer and just really kind of focus there or Europe or Australia or wherever I think it's going to be good. And, um, yeah, just kind of go from there. And then in between, if I don't have anything for a couple of weeks, I'll you know, go to the closest, biggest city and street perform there. Um, I also, during the pandemic, I did some neighborhood shows. And those worked really well because I would organize like a neighborhood show in a cul-de-sac in a suburb um, or in a, you know, a church parking lot or somewhere. And I'd advertise it on Facebook and through family and friends and different groups. And I'd get... I don't know, 20 families on average to come out. I'd form a big circle. I'd made it COVID safe so that, you know, all the families were um, 10 feet from one another. And I would do my show and then just ask for tips at the end. And people loved it because I came to them. They got some live entertainment. It was, you know, safe. And so I, I figured out I could still perform during the pandemic by doing these neighborhood shows. And I, I think they're gonna, like, even after the pandemic ends, I think it's still a good idea and I can probably still do them and I can do them anywhere. You know, I can go to Denver, I can go to Atlanta or wherever wherever I want and organize these street shows or neighborhood shows. Yeah. Um, which is one good thing that came out of the pandemic. I actually found this new, um, this new kind of way to perform that I never even thought existed. Mm -hmm. And I've even convinced other street performers to try it and they agree that it, it was awesome and it works. And um, it's a little more work. You got to set it up and, you know, make the event and try to advertise it and get people to RSVP and stuff, but it works. Cool. It's definitely um, a thing. So what would your sweet spot be? in terms of how many days a year would be ideal to be performing just in general? Um, so like I keep track of all my hours and everything and I usually perform about six, seven months a year. And then I'll take the rest of the time off just to, you know, chill, travel. Um, I like to be a ski bum in the winter. So I usually take, you know, a month or two, sometimes three months off, and I just live in my van and ski every day and 
and spend some of the money I, I made during the summer and, and spring and fall. Um, because I need, you know, I need time off too. I need time to have fun. Like I have fun performing, but it's nice to take, because when I work hard, I work hard. Like I'll do sometimes four or five, six shows a day if it's good at a festival or street performing. And that's a lot of work. That's, you know, each show is about 40 minutes long by the time you start and build a crowd and, and finish and pack up. So it's, I definitely work hard when, when it's good. And then during the winter, it's not very good. So I, I take some time off. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to go to Australia every December and January because it is summer there and it's school holidays and I have my residency over there so I can live and work there. Um, but I didn't go last year or this year because of the pandemic. And I don't know if I'll go back because it's, it's fun. It's, it's good over there, but I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So, when you're performing, obviously, if you're doing things with fire or you're up on a big unicycle, the obvious thing that can happen is things can and probably have gone wrong from time to time, maybe less so now. How did you learn how to deal with when something goes wrong? Let's say something breaks or something that's either your fault or not your fault. What thoughts do you have on when things don't work out? Um, you just got to roll with it. You got to just try to make most out of it and that's when sometimes you'll find some new jokes or new comedy bits that work because you'll just say something off the top of your head and it'll get a good laugh and you're like oh i might have to keep that in the show yeah uh, um and then you know if something breaks or you know you you mess up you just gotta roll with it and you know adapt and try to figure out what to say or do to make it better and it doesn't always work um uh, luckily, I've been pretty good. I'm, like I said, I'm a decent unicyclist, so I haven't had any major injuries up there. Um, except I did have, I did fall off the 12 foot two different times, and they were both mechanical issues. Um, the first time I rode it, the chain fell off, Ugh. and without a chain, you have no oh control. <laughs> um, so that that sucked. Luckily, I just bruised my heel. Okay. And we realized the the guy that built it made the thing that tightens the chain. It was too long and too much um, torque. And so we redesigned it, fixed it. I tested it out the second time. It seemed fine. And the third time was during a national unicycling convention and championship show. Like it was in, on a stage in front of all my peers, all these other really good unicyclists and I'm doing my show. And I used to like pretend like I'm following, falling in, into the crowd. Like a lot of performers do on a tall one, you know, you yeah. like pretend Whoa, and then yeah. you're like, ah, you're kidding. So I did that oh, no. and something slipped and I almost did fall into the crowd and oh, it was like a five foot stage. So it would have been a, like a 20 foot fall. Oh, it would have been a big fall. No. Um, but I continued on. I just, I thought it was a slippery stage or something. And I used to do a lot of tricks up there and I went to do one foot idle. And when I did that, something slipped again and I came down, luckily not into the crowd, but um, just on stage, I broke a rib, 
and I realized the the cog, um, like the the sprocket, had came loose on the wheel, and that's why oh. I fell. And but I was devastated. It was in front of it was during a show in front of all my peers, and like I was not happy. And I was I was so pissed off. I it was a brand new twelve foot unicycle. I threw it in my garage. I didn't touch it for a year. I'm like, that thing's a piece of junk. And I paid a lot of money for it. So after a year, I'm like, okay, I should really just fix it and make it right. And and so I went to a bike shop and we got everything tight and loctited. And and ever since then, I haven't fallen off yet. Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on some wood. But, there we um, go. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was it was a bad start. It was a bad start. But um, that was, you know mechanical issues and we fixed them and now it's now it's great all right folks if i've learned anything from jamie it's that we need a little pitch here this is my hat line before the big finale of this show the hat line is telling you to contribute now i'm not asking you to put money in a literal hat although i probably should be if we're being honest but what i will ask you to do is to not ignore this message maybe you've ignored it the last 15 times you've heard it i don't know But please rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Because again, if people like me don't benefit from doing stuff like this, there's no incentive for us to do this. That's the theme of this show today. You have to directly support the things that provide you value in life. So if you have found value in this show, All I ask is that you share this episode, you share the show with people who need to hear about it, and you subscribe, rate it five stars, leave a nice comment, leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts to help this show grow. That's all I ask. That's my pitch. Okay, let's get back to this fascinating story. I love the idea that you can get the biggest laugh so you can find new jokes from those types of material. That reminds me of a story when I was... um, when I was in high school, I wrote a stage adaptation of the movie Hook. You've seen the movie Hook, Peter Pan. So I wrote yep. it, and uh, I starred in it as Peter Pan probably because I wrote it. And it was a high school, and we had this really ghetto-rigging system for flying because you can't do Peter Pan without flying. So you have a couple of high school kids holding some rope or wire or whatever, and their job is one of them pulls you up and down, and the other one pulls you left and right across the stage, and if they work together, in theory, you should have something that approximates a flying motion, very basic way. So they weren't very good at it. And the opening night, I think there were maybe 1,500 people in the audience. The first time we go to fly, there's a basketball hoop on the stage, and they just slam me into this basketball stage. And there's nothing I can do. I'm suspended in the air. And I see myself accelerating towards this basketball hoop. And I knew I was like, there's, there's no point in moving. So I hit it real hard. Thankfully, I wasn't injured. But there's this giant gasp from this whole crowd, horribly embarrassing kind of thing. And I somehow had the presence of mind, I yelled out, apparently flying is not like riding a bike. Biggest laugh (laughs) I ever got in my entire life. I mean, it was like two minutes of uproarious laughter, crying. And, you know, the joke is my expense. But I love that you say that that can be the source when things go wrong of new jokes, new material, because I think that's the moment that most people 
fear when they're considering doing anything like this, interacting with a crowd? Like, what if I get up there? What if I embarrass myself? What if something goes wrong? What if I mess up? What if someone does something that I'm not ready for? Right. And Um, did you have any kind of training in like improv or any sort of theatrical training or it's all just on the streets learning? Nope. Just learned it all on the streets. And like I said, like you learn really fast um, what works and doesn't work. And, and it, it sucks. Like the hardest part about street performing is standing like putting yourself out there and having people walk away. You know, you, you do a 30, 40 minute show and you're standing there with your hat collecting tips and you see like half the people just walk away. And it's like, it, like it hurts. Like it, it really hurts. Like, like it's almost like they're giving you the middle finger as they're walking away because they, they didn't thank you. They didn't tip you. And it's really hard to go back out there and do another show after that, something like that happens. Mm-hmm. And you know, you get bad people, bad crowds every now and then. And you just gotta like, you just gotta forget about it and just try again. And the next show might be amazing. And, you know, no one walks away and everyone comes up and says thank you and puts money in the hat. So you just never know. Um, of course, some places are better. Some places just more people walk walk away at the end. Um, but you, you got to try to explain to the crowd what you just did. And like the most important part of a street show is the end right before the grand finale when you ask for the money. Um, because you got to kind of explain to the audience what just happened, what you just did and what's that worth, you know, what's that worth to them that you just made them laugh and smile for 30 minutes. And, um, so you kind of got to explain that to them and tell them that it's your full-time job. And most of the time people will understand that and they appreciate it and they'll, um, they'll, you know, tip you and say thank you. And, um, but yeah, that's very important. Right before the grand finale, you got to kind of tell the audience what just happened and and if they liked it and if they want to keep street performing alive, then they got a tip because if people aren't making money, they're going to stop doing it. Yeah. So yeah. do you have a thought on the relationship to crowds? Because as a performer, a crowd can either be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on, like you said, whether they're a good crowd or a bad crowd. Um, But I think there can be, this is just my thought, there can be a danger when you have some bad experiences with the crowd, or let's say they walk away or it's just, it's not working out. There can be a danger, I think, to protect ourselves internally. We sort of want to put the blame on the crowd so we can almost have an animosity towards the group of people in front of us we can almost say oh you don't like me well i'm going to protect myself in advance i don't like you first or and then you can get to this kind of standoffish or almost a negative sort of vibe do you have to tell yourself things about the crowd do you have to say things to yourself like i love the crowd do you have to tell yourself like i love these people they will love me to make it that friendly, positive way? Yeah, you make a great point. Like, if if the crowd's not happy and having fun, it, it does come back to me. Like, it's my fault for not convincing them and not, you know, making sure they're having fun and not listening to them. And, you know, it, it can be frustrating at times when it doesn't happen. 
and you do put a lot of blame on yourself. Um, but you just gotta like, I'm a very positive person. So I just keep smiling and I keep trying my hardest and it almost always ends up where the crowd's on your side and, you know, they're with you. Um, sometimes it takes, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to get them on your side, but you just gotta stay positive, keep smiling. You know, if you tell a joke and they don't laugh as much as they should have, just keep trying harder and, you know, eventually they will hopefully switch and be on your side. Um, I do use a kid in my show and I, I jump over their legs on the unicycle and I get them to throw a juggling club up to my 12 foot. And every now and then the kid will be scared and will start crying. And that's, it's hard to get a crowd back once I make a kid cry. You know, of course <laughs> I don't do it on purpose, right. but you know, it's, it's scary. This random dude's going to jump over you on a unicycle or they got to throw up a 12 uh, club up 12 feet and they're scared. Um, so when that happens, I have a hard time winning them over, especially if I can't get the kid back, you know, because sometimes I'll, you know, give the kid money or whatever to win them back. And, and usually if I can win the kid back, then I win the crowd back. But, you know, when they run off stage crying and cry the rest of the show, it's uh, it's not good for for the show. But it happens and it's part of part of my, my job. You have good shows, you have bad shows. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. It's like life. You know? It's just like I was going to say, it's a powerful metaphor for life and a lot of people's endeavors in general. And you just have a much more direct connection. And that's what you said about the power of the streets you have a direct connection to the public. And a lot of those same forces are in play, whatever anybody does, but there may be some level of abstraction between um, you and the audience, right? If, if you work at a company or whatever, uh, then you don't exactly see that, but it's always there. But if you're on the streets like you are, you have that direct, immediate feedback. <laughs> like you said, if somebody, if it works, uh, then, you know... It's just, I think it's a fascinating yeah. pursuit. And then it's, there's a lot of stuff in your story that applies to literally anybody doing anything, I think, for those who are willing to listen. Uh, at this point in your life, what, what would your goal be? I mean, it sounds like you've settled into a pretty nice groove. You could, Like you said, you can kind of continue doing this for as long as you want. What's your next goal? Or do you just want to keep doing this? Are you fulfilled and happy yeah, in the I moment? Just wanna, I just want to keep doing this. Um you know, I love what I do. I, you know, my whole goal in life is to make as many people happy as I can. And, uh, if I can get paid to do that, that's awesome. You know, two thumbs up. Yeah. Um, if, you know, eventually I'll become too old to perform or not be able to do as much physical stuff as I can right now. And I hope to still perform, but maybe do less of the dangerous stuff. Maybe yeah. do a more comedy based show. Um, I wouldn't mind being a circus teacher, you know, in the sure. future, you know, yeah. teaching other people how to perform and unicycle and juggle. Um, but for now I'm, I'm pretty happy with how things are going. And especially now that, you know, the things are opening up again and festivals are coming back and street performance is allowed and it's nice to, and like the last couple of months, People are so appreciated 
Like they, they just really love live entertainment. They missed it. And they're, they're like clapping extra loud and they're laughing extra loud. Like the shows have just been amazing because I think people really did miss that that connection. And you see that that energy. energy. Yeah. People realize how valuable it was. And to your point, like if you don't support this, then street performing dies. And now people, I think more than ever, they realize this was something that added materially to my life and to my existence, which is right. And they're very generous now too. Like they've (laughs) given me tips. They've been really good because I don't know if it's they have government money still that they're (laughs) running or right. They just appreciate it more. But the the tips have been really good. So it's nice to feel that again and and, uh, be back out there performing. Mm -hmm for sure well you know i can't thank you enough for taking the time i love your story i think it's a truly remarkable story and it's proof that if you don't like where you're at if you don't like what you're doing you can take your situation into your own hands you can take control you don't have to be a victim of your circumstance and you know i i think again with the directness or the layer of abstraction like when you work at a job the company is making money in the marketplace, but you are getting money from the company. And often it's setting a cap on what you can make per hour. And no matter whether you work harder or less hard or do good, you have for a lot of people a cap. You will make 20 bucks an hour, let's just say, and that's it. But the company yeah. might be making billions or trillions. Who knows what they're making? You're not connected to any of that. But when you take it into your own hands, you start realizing, okay, what is the value of a literal dollar? What does $1 mean to an actual person? And how do I extract $1 from 50 different people, 100 different people in the moment? So you have like a direct connection to the public, to the people, to money in a way that I think a lot of people don't fully understand, which I think is, is really cool. And it can be scary. It can be hard. It can be extremely oh, difficult. Definitely scary, right? Yeah, when I, when I quit my engineering job, it was super scary because right. I didn't know what I was gonna do. My parents were like, "Are you crazy? You're gonna like quit your good engineering job and become a street performer?" Right. Like they, That's a they nightmare. Did not understand it. And you know, like street performers don't have the best. Like I don't know, we're looked down upon for the most part. I think in general, they, we we kind of get classed as like a beggar and um, not only like it's just, it's, it's weird, but my parents finally understood. I did the right thing a couple years later when they actually saw one of my shows and they saw I was making it and, and happy. They're like, okay, that makes sense now. But it's yeah. To, to quit your job and try something new, super scary, but it also, it makes you feel alive, you know, like, like you don't know what's going to happen and it's it's a good thing i think to change things you know people get stuck in a rut and sometimes you just need that big change to change your life hopefully for the better and you know context matters if you've seen the movie wild style that hip-hop 80s movie hilarious movie about a kid who's a graffiti artist let's say in new york i don't know inner city graffiti artist and He's painting trains and his work is classed as a public nuisance. But then the whole point of the movie is he gets into an art gallery or somebody takes him seriously and puts his work into the context of an art gallery. And suddenly he's perceived as a genius doing the same thing. We do have these weird classing systems in our society where we say like, oh, you're a beggar. But if you're in Cirque du Soleil, you're a brilliant 
performer, right? But right, out on the streets, right. it's somehow worse, even though the skill and the talent and the dedication can be exactly the same, which is kind of right. messed up, honestly. It's, it's a crazy world we live in. It is. But I'm glad you're out there in it. I'm glad you're doing your thing. I think the world is better that you're in it. So we're reaching the end of our hour here. Yeah. But I just want to thank you. I was kind of like, yeah, you're welcome. I'd kind of like to um, finish by saying I'd like to thank my grandma for having that unicycle. And like looking back, like I would have never thought that would have changed my life. And uh, another key moment was when the that old lady came up and gave me that $20 bill um, after my first show. Um, if she didn't do that, I probably would have never tried it again. I was that devastated. And it's amazing how one random act of kindness can change someone's life. And I don't know who it was. Um, you know, I wish I could thank her now if I found her. Um, and by that time, my grandma that had the unicycle had died. So I like to think that was like her spirit, you know, kind of like encouraging me to to keep doing it. Um yeah, I mean, who knows, but Love that. it's amazing how one person can just change your life. And if you're listening and if you're watching out there right now, let that be a lesson. Be that one person in your life. Support somebody today or this week. Yeah. Show somebody support yeah, because you don't know who in your life might be on the verge of quitting something. So support them. Be that grandma. <laughs> <laughs> that's my yeah. that's my message from the takeaway. Be that grandma. Show somebody support. <laughs> if you've been a passive observer, be active. Anyways, that's my sign off. Jamie Mossengren, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. I love your story. I think it's awesome. Thanks for reaching out. Truly a pleasure yeah, to get to know you. Keep on rocking. And with that, the official podcast is over. All right. What a whirlwind. I really enjoyed that episode. What a fascinating guy. And I love that he took it upon himself to learn all of these things and to build out this career for himself. It's just a reminder, folks, that anything is possible, that there are way more possibilities in our life and our career than we sometimes feel. Sometimes we think like, oh, I'm a banker. I have to be a different kind of banker. We get so narrow-minded in our focus that we lose sight to the wealth of possibilities that are really out there in the world and that there might be more direct ways to make money than we've ever thought about. So love this episode. Again, if you enjoyed this show, if it's inspired you, if any of these episodes have ever inspired you in any way or if it's changed your life or helped you think about your own problems in any kind of new way, all I ask is that you subscribe anywhere. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to the show. Rate the show five stars in Apple Podcasts. Leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Do anything you can personally do to help me grow this show. Let me know that you're out there. Let me know that you appreciate it. Let me know that you're listening, and I will forever be grateful. Be that person. Anyways, thanks for listening. I really appreciate your time, and I will see you next week on the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm Ross Palmer.